Let us pray. Lord, from this old letter and this old prayer, speak to us the message we need today for the living of these days. Amen. Last week, we began a sermon series that will stretch across six weeks with a break next Sunday for our hymn sing. As I said last week, the idea for this series came from the experience of sharing our lament about all that is broken in the world. At the same time, the lectionary happens to be moving through the book of Romans. So for these weeks, we'll look at texts from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome, paired with the psalm, a prayer for that week. Now, Romans is a book Christians have read for centuries to understand the paradox of the already and the not yet. How people who have already received the gift of grace can live in a world that does not yet look like God's vision of wholeness. Romans is heady. It's theologically complex. Paul writes about things like salvation and grace and eternal life. This text is a go-to for conversations about predestination, which we will have another day. But Romans is also simply a letter. It was a message to a church 2,000 years ago, and it is still a letter to a church. It helps us understand the good news of the eternal life we're promised, but it also helps us understand how we can live now. Last week, the excerpt we read found creation groaning, longing for a changed world, hoping for what is not yet seen. We pick up this week with the very next verse. You'll hear the transition as this passage starts with the word, likewise. And here, Paul turns from the groaning of creation to the shared human experience of weakness and vulnerability. Last week, we talked about the countercultural practice of humility, of admitting that we don't know, and starting not from a place of defensiveness or feigned expertise, as is so common, but instead humbly asking to be taught. We prayed together, teach us, Lord. This morning, we hear Paul's reassurance that we can be vulnerable in the safety of God's love. Here now, our New Testament lesson for this morning, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? 
If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yet who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've probably all heard that long passage many times, and probably mostly at funerals and memorial services. This is one of the texts we turn to in times of grief, in times when we hold to the promise that death is not the last word for the people we love and miss, when we most want to hear that nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love. But there's so much more in this passage than death. In fact, if you heard it, death is just one thing in Paul's long list of hardships that cannot separate us from God's love. So this isn't just a comforting text at times of death. It's also a text for the living. At the heart of this passage, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ. And then he answers his own question with a long list of hard things we live through to make the point that they are not as powerful as God's love. Not hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. No, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. I have to take a deep breath for this long list. Nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The list feels long to read especially twice in one sermon. But friends, that is the point. That is its power. The list is long to capture the magnitude of the promise that nothing, not one single hard thing we experience is as strong as God's love. If we were making that list for ourselves today, we would probably use different vocabulary We can think about the hardships we know, about the things that make us feel vulnerable, and again, make as long a list as we need. We might ask about illness, loneliness, bullies, food insecurity, homelessness, 
and violence? What about fatigue and self-doubt? What about unkind people who have power over us? Anxiety, rejection, and fear of the future, will they be the last word in our lives? We can add whatever we experience to that list, and the answer will still be that nothing that makes us vulnerable is as strong as God's love. Paul's list is not hypothetical. He's speaking to a congregation of folks who are going through the very things he names. In fact, from the beginning, Paul assumes that the congregation at Rome is suffering. And not just because creation is groaning, not just because the big world out there is broken, they're experiencing hardship on a personal level. This passage opens with, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Just that. That short sentence is such a comfort. Paul saying, the Spirit is always seeing us and holding us up. But that short sentence, when we read it from our modern context, it also breaks down how our culture views weakness. It makes weakness, or I'm going to use the term vulnerability, normal. Paul doesn't say that weakness is bad or that we should be ashamed when we go through hardship. He doesn't judge or blame the Romans. He does not tell them to suck it up and get it together. Quite the opposite. He assumes that they know what it is to be vulnerable. All of them, or I should say, all of us. The pronouns in this passage are all plural. Paul writes that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us pray, and we know that all things work together for good in the fullness of God's love. We live in a world of false dichotomies. We are told that there are weak people and strong people. There are winners and losers. There are sick people and well people, rich people and poor people, people who succeed and people who fail. And we should strive to be strong, rich, well, successful winners. But those are not God's categories. In the kingdom of God, there are simply people. And Paul writes to those people, knowing that we all experience weakness and illness and loss and failure. We are all vulnerable, no matter how hard we strive or try to pretend otherwise. So, like humility, vulnerability is a countercultural posture. We are very good at hiding our hardships. We are practiced, taught even, not to appear vulnerable. So why, why should people of faith admit vulnerability at all? Before I offer an answer to that question, let me be very clear about what I am not saying. I am not saying that in the face of manipulation or abuse, we should make ourselves vulnerable. I am not saying that anyone should subject themselves to mistreatment 
or accept the lie that abuse is deserved. The biblical witness tells us unequivocally that God desires our well-being, not our pain. When the Apostle Paul highlights the vulnerabilities of the Rome church folks, he reminds them that hardship is not God's intent for them, and it will not be the last word in their lives. People of faith, we admit that we're vulnerable to open ourselves to love. Remember that list of hard things Paul included in his letter? That long list is great news. It means that we can put down the ideal of stoicism, the veneer of strength, and the lie that we have only ourselves. We have the love of God, a love so strong that nothing, not anything in life or in death, can separate us from it. A posture of vulnerability, admitting that we hurt, opens us to the transformative experience of God's love. Lucy just read a few short verses from Psalm 119. The whole psalm is very long, but it's quite interesting. In Hebrew, the stanzas start with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, like an acrostic poem. We don't really get that poetry when it's translated into English. But we do hear the prayer of someone who is experiencing pain. This psalm uses the word oppression. This person looks around at his life and at the world and he cries. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears. But in that hardship, he also prays. He prays, turn to me, turn to me, God. In my vulnerability, turn to me and show me your love. In a world that teaches us to avoid vulnerability at all cost, this is such an honest prayer. Turn to me, Lord, see my pain, and show me your love. There's a second reason for us as people of faith to admit our vulnerability, and that is that it changes how we live together. When we're in the middle of a hardship, we feel like we're the only ones. When we're caregiving for a loved one, we think no one else knows what it is to be that tired and afraid and alone. When our relationships break down, we think no one else knows that loss. When someone we love dies, we think no one can understand that hole that can never be filled. But acknowledging that we're suffering changes how we see each other. We realize that others have experienced the deep love and fatigue of caregiving. Others are trying to get through life without someone they love. People in our own family of faith do know the pain of a broken relationship or a lost job or fear of the future. In an article from last summer called The Perks of Being a Hot Mess, Harvard professor Arthur Brooks writes about how transformative it is to put aside our false expectations of strength and success and to share our vulnerability. Arthur Brooks will be with us here at Trinity on November 16th as our Kittrell lecturer. 
He's going to talk that night about his book, Love Your Enemies, but Brooks also has an ongoing series of articles and podcasts that are called How to Build a Life. He studies the practices that can lead us to happiness. And this article from last summer was in that series. In it, Brooks writes that most people believe that if they admit to weakness, others will judge us harshly for saying that we made a mistake or are asking for help. In our world, media, especially social media, heightens this effect. We see around us carefully curated pictures, and they show only what is good, and they hide our experiences of what is hard. No one puts a picture of their suffering up on Instagram. So when we are in the heart of a vulnerable moment, we think we're alone. In those moments, though, our vulnerability can be a bridge between us. Sharing what is hard in our lives invites someone else to stop hiding the pain that they experience. And it lets us give each other the greatest gift of compassion. What's more, Brooks writes, being open about your suffering in others' service is a form of self-compassion as well. Let me say that again. There's a lot in that sentence. Being open about your suffering in the service of others is a form of self-compassion. It allows us to understand our own pain non-judgmentally and to treat it as part of our normal and shared human experience. The very vulnerability that isolates us has the power to connect us to God, to ourselves, and to each other. One final note about acknowledging vulnerability as a practice of our faith. If we begin, as the Apostle Paul did, with the assumption that we are all, every one of us, vulnerable, it becomes so much harder to keep grouping ourselves into the categories of our culture, weak and strong, winner and loser, sick and well, rich and poor, success and failure. How different would our world look if the culture and decisions that drive us were no longer based on preserving those labels, on shaming and judging each other and ourselves? Teach us, Lord. Turn to us in our vulnerability and show us your transforming love. Amen.